Good morning. Please turn to Mark chapter 14 with me. Well, we've been called uh, Sing Like an 820 Tractor, and by God's grace, I want to preach like an 820 tractor. Amen. Amen. If you were to talk to somebody who had never heard of the Bible, and they wanted to know what the Bible is, what would you tell them? Where would you begin? You might start with the truth that the Bible is the Word of God. It's a book that reveals God to man. Everything that it says about him is true. You might start there. You might go on to explain that it's made of 66 books and that it was written by human authors. And although it was written by human authors, every single word was inspired by God. So that although it has human authors, every word is from God. Every word is God's word. You might add to that that the Bible is divided into the New and Old Testament. You'd be explaining some pretty basic things, wouldn't you? Some of the basics of the Bible. I want to back up to that last point. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Of course, uh, Jewish people who adhere to the Old Testament don't call it an Old Testament, uh, but we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Have you ever wondered why? Today, as we continue in our study of the Lord's Supper, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about the New Covenant, and we'll understand hopefully a little bit about the New and the Old Testament through that, Uh, and by doing this, we're going to consider what Jesus means when he talks about the cup in communion. So let's read our passage once again in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22 down through verse 25. Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of great patience and of great mercy. As we read our Bibles, we see, Lord, that you have had great patience with your people throughout the ages. You've had great mercy. And you are a God who has patiently, over the course of years and centuries and generations, you have worked out your plan of salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we come to you and praise you. Pray that you would help us to understand the big story of your word better. You help us to, to fit it together and understand it, Lord. Give us grace, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The main thing we're going to see from this passage this morning is that Jesus institutes the new covenant by his death. Jesus institutes the new covenant by his death. And we're going to look first at the covenant and then at the cup as we see that. 
So as we've been in our series now for, I think this is the third week, considering communion, we saw the first week what the bread means. Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat it. Uh, Seeing that it's uh, a picture, it's a symbol, it points to a reality that is true of us when we believe in Christ. We, when we trust in Christ, we have eaten of him by faith. We're like the Israelites going through the wilderness who eat of the bread and live, uh, but it's better because when we eat of Christ by faith, we don't just have life for a day, but we live forever in Christ. So that's a pointer of the bread. Uh, then last time we saw that there is one bread and there's one cup, and that that reality, as we looked at 1 Corinthians, compared it there, points to the fact that we are one in Christ. We have unity in Christ together. We are one body, even as we're described as the body of Christ. Uh, we enjoy that together, and it should drive us on to service, we also saw, uh, to serve one another. Uh, in our passage today, we're going to see what Jesus means when he talks about the cup. He, in verse 23, he takes a cup, he gives thanks, and then he gives it to his disciples, and they all drink from it. And in verse 24, Jesus explains the meaning of the cup to them. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We're going to spend our time there this morning, considering what Jesus means. Uh, one of the words that sticks out in verse 24 is a word we don't use all the time. Uh, Josh mentioned it in scripture reading. It's the word covenant. Uh, and here, Mark just simply says that it's the blood of the covenant. If we go to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, uh, we see that Jesus there says that it is the, the cup is the new covenant in his blood. So we know that that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a covenant. He's mentioning, talking about the new covenant here. Uh, if there is a new covenant, then there must be a former covenant or an old covenant. You think about, uh, this is just basic, I mean, New York, for instance. Uh, in northeast England, there's a town called York. That's the old York, I guess. It's the former York, and... In the United States, there's uh, a lot of states and places like that. New Hampshire, well, there's an old world Hampshire. New Jersey, it's an island off of France. Uh, there's a new, there's, there's an old. Uh, even the new world and old world, right? Uh, here, Jesus is talking about the new covenant. And what's it new in reference to? Uh, to find that answer, we want to go back. We want to go back in the scriptures. I want to go to Jeremiah 31. I'm going to work out your thumbs a little bit today. We'll be in a few different passages as we see the covenant played out over the history of the Old Testament and some in the New Testament. Try not to work your thumbs right off your hands, though. We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 31. Starting in verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The promise of the new covenant here in Jeremiah 31 comes in light of the broken covenant. And that's the covenant that God made with Israel uh, and Judah's fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. This covenant, sometimes called the Old Covenant in the New Testament, uh, is the covenant that God made with Israel under Moses. Sometimes, because of that, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. The New Covenant is new in reference to the Old Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31, we've just seen here, God mentions that the Old Covenant was broken by Israel. And boy, was it. Uh, They really broke the covenant many times. Uh, In Exodus chapter 24, I won't read, I won't turn there, I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, In Exodus chapter 24, we find uh, that moment when the Old Covenant gets brought in. It's when the Old Covenant is instituted. Uh, In that passage, Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has just delivered his people out uh, out of Egypt. You remember the ten plagues that came through? Finally, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Israel's ejected. God miraculously sustains his people in the wilderness brings them across the Red Sea, delivers them from Egypt. They finally, in the, the part of Exodus there, they finally made it to the, mount, the, the foot of Mount Sinai. And they are before the Lord there. Uh, they've come to worship. And Moses sacrifices animals to the Lord. And then he puts some of that blood on the altar. <clears throat> and I'll read a little bit out of uh, chapter 24 of Exodus here. Uh, This continues in the story. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now this is an astonishing moment in the history of Israel. They've just been redeemed from slavery. They've been brought near. God has spelled out to them the terms of the covenant. And they've all agreed to obey it. They said, every single word we will do. Uh, At that moment, burnt offerings and peace offerings were made. Uh, Burnt offerings are to make atonement, Leviticus 1.4 says. Peace offerings are a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Leviticus 3.5. And the blood of these animals have been sprinkled on the altar and the the book of the covenant and the people. Uh, Everybody's getting splashed with blood here. Uh, And at this moment, for Israel, everything seems to be going great. There's a moment of hope and excitement. I mean, think about it. The people of Israel are eating at the feet of God, and he doesn't kill them. You know, you're not supposed to see God. I don't know exactly how they saw God. Other other places in Scripture says nobody has seen God. But in some sense, they saw God. It says that he didn't lay his hand on them. 
this is an exciting moment. The covenant has just been freshly minted, but it's not going to be long before it's broken. As a matter of fact, it will only be the matter of a handful of weeks before the people of Israel go from sitting at the feet of God to rising up to play at the feet of the golden calf. Uh, It's really tragic. Israel has this covenant, and weeks later, they're committing idolatry. I mean, this is worse than the person who goes to the dealership and buys a brand new car and crashes it on the way home. I mean, this, uh, this is a tragic moment. They are already being unfaithful to Yahweh only weeks later. Sadly, it's not going to be the last time that they're unfaithful either. In fact, in the passage in Jeremiah 31, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, have been so unfaithful that the only answer is for deportation. Uh, by this point in Jeremiah, the northern kingdom has already been taken away by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom, Judah, is in the process of getting scraped off the land by the Babylonians. And it's pretty uh, bleak at this point in Jeremiah because he's telling them the best thing you can do is to go into exile. One of the things that we find in the New Testament as we look back on the Old Covenant is that the Old Covenant was marked by failure. Why is this? Why did the Old Covenant turn out this way? When there is a catastrophic failure for a plane or, or any mechanical thing, and especially when lives are lost, there's usually an investigation into what happened. Back in the 90s, there was a helicopter, that an American helicopter abroad, that went down, and I believe servicemen were killed in it, uh, and Hillary Clinton was uh, appointed to lead an investigation into what happened. And uh, through the process, it was determined that the helicopter had failed and crashed uh, because of one part, there was a, a hose fitting, a, a, a nipple that uh, put two cables together that had apparently failed, and that caused the crash of the helicopter. And I only know about it because uh, one of the foremen at the shop I worked had told me about it because the blame had been pinned on the shop that I had just come to work at, and it was in the previous decade. Uh, but the point of sharing this is that when something like that happens, when there's a catastrophic failure people naturally want to know why. Why did it happen? And I think as we see the failure throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we naturally want to know why. And the New Testament has commentary on that. Why was there so much failure under the Old Covenant? Uh, We'll see that uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's turn now to there, back into the New Testament, over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews is the first book after the letters of Paul, after Philemon, before 1 Peter and 1 John and those. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is continuing to describe how Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, He says that Jesus ministers in a better tabernacle than the tabernacle of the Old Covenant in the first part of chapter 8. And I want to start reading in in verse 6 of of Hebrews 8, and I'll read down through verse 9. 
Uh, and we're going we're gonna to see that he, the author of Hebrews is actually going to quote the same passage we saw in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 30, uh, 31. Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old uh, as the covenant than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I'll stop there. We've read the Jeremiah passage already. But did you notice the cause of failure there? It talks about finding fault in the first covenant, but then in verse 8, it says, For he finds fault with them. Later, verse 9, says, For they did not continue in my covenant. So there is the cause for the catastrophic failure in the old covenant. It wasn't actually anything wrong with the covenant itself. It wasn't as if God's law or his covenant was defective. The cause of failure was the human heart. Sin was the real problem. Why was there failure under the old covenant? It was operator error. There were heart issues at play there. And so there was a need for a new covenant. And in the new covenant, things would be different. One of the key things we see from Jeremiah 31 about this new covenant, it's repeated here in in Hebrews 8, is that the law would be written on the heart of the people who were in the covenant. God's law would be written on our hearts. Now, how does that happen? I think that brings us to one of the key marks of the new covenant. There's all sorts of distinctions and differences from the new covenant to the old covenant. One of the key marks of difference is that in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has come to live in his people. We see that in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that as Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit to come, that he does come. Now, yes, if we read the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned. We see the Holy Spirit coming on the judges for great acts. We see the Holy Spirit empowering people to prophesy. We see him working in the Old Covenant. So it's not as if he's absent, but there's something unique and distinct in the Old Covenant, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in every single member of the New Covenant. And Jesus promised the Spirit in John chapter 14 to 16 that after he ascends to the Father, he would send the Spirit. Jesus will go so far as in John chapter 16, 7 to say that it's better if he goes away because then the Helper will come. That seems pretty astonishing. I would love to have Jesus here face to face today. He says that it's better if he goes away and sends the Helper. John 16, 13, he says that the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide us into all truth. He's going to guide his disciples in the truth. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit regenerates the hearts of every member of the covenant. That's one of the key differences between the old and the new covenants. Under the old covenant, all of Israel was in the covenant, even those who didn't believe. Under the new covenant, every member of the covenant has had God's law written on his or her heart. Every member of the new covenant has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that's the way that God is going to ensure 
that the new covenant is kept. The old covenant was not kept because of the heart of people. In the new covenant, he will live in us to guide us. Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you. That changes everything. It really changes you when you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've been brought near to God. You are no longer an alien and an exile out there, but God has, by His Spirit, drawn you to Himself by moving into you. (laughs) He has come to dwell in you. A fundamental change has come over the Christian. You know, it's not as if sin has absolutely no appeal to us anymore, but when the Holy Spirit lives in you, there is something of a nagging presence to sin. Sin we, we can't be as uh, stooped into thinking that sin is satisfying when we have been filled by the Holy Spirit. There is a real change that comes over us. Sin may have its appeal, but when we engage in sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and that affects us. Our happiness in the Lord is connected to our holiness in the Lord now. And if we are living in sin, we can expect to be miserable And as we walk with the Lord, on the other hand, he continues to show us in our lives those areas where we're not in conformity to Christ. He leads us along gently, showing us where we can grow more into him. And we aren't left to ourselves. In the new covenant, we're not left to ourselves to muster up the strength to do what God calls us to do. Instead, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of the risen Christ who lives in inside of us and he is yearning for our holiness he is yearning for our conformity to christ we are not left to ourselves god is in us to help us when we sin he brings conviction and he gives us new desires he gives us the desire to want to be like christ he gives us the desire to even want to want to be like christ even the desire to be there uh, he, he gives us that same Holy Spirit transforms us. He renews our minds through his word, and he causes us to change bit by bit. If you want to grow in the Lord, then ask him for help to grow. He is eager to answer that prayer. Seek him in prayer and in his word. Seek him in meeting with other believers and in serving the Lord. Seek the Lord, and you will find him if you genuinely seek him. He is eager to meet you and bring you along in your walk with him. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is just one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but it's an important one. It's the only one I'm really going to mention in full this morning. Uh, In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and the law is written on our hearts. Uh, There's more here in Mark chapter 14 that we should consider. Uh, There was the statement as well that Jesus makes about the blood of, of the covenant. So now I want to turn and consider the cup. We've seen the covenant. Let's think about the cup for a minute. In Mark 14, 23, again, Jesus explains the meaning of the cup in this way. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why blood? Have you ever thought about that? Why is there so much blood in the Bible? Blood makes some people pretty squeamish. Uh, some people faint at the sight of blood. 
I was raised to be the kind of hunter that would take a deer from hoof to the freezer. Uh, And I was taught along the way pretty much every step of the process. I found out that my Minnesota family does not equally appreciate every step of that process, uh, except for George. He's right there with me through the worst of it. Uh, Some people just don't like blood. And you know what? I can't blame them. Blood is best kept in the body. But you know what? There's a lot of talk about blood in the Bible. Why is that? Why does it have to be so messy? Well, there is a good and straightforward reason for that. There is so much mess and blood in the Bible because there is so much sin and mess in our world. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is, you know this, death. The wages of sin is death. Now, under the Old Covenant, there was a provisional kind of atonement that was made through the death of bulls and the death of goats. Uh, And pictured through those sacrifices was the fact that sin deserved death. When animals were killed, it was to picture the fact that our sin deserves death. The blood of that animal would be shed Its life would be poured out. Now, I know that for some of you, that's really hard to hear. Uh, But you might actually feel the weight of this all better than any of us. Sin is not a light matter. It is serious. Sin is deadly serious. In fact, sin brought death into this world. And because we have sinned, we either must face death or we need a substitute. Our sin will either be judged on our own head or on the head of another. And that is where Christ has stepped in to be our substitute. And his blood becomes the blood of the covenant. He becomes our substitute. And in his death, he ratifies the new covenant. He brings in the new covenant. And that is the point of the blood of the covenant. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He is our substitute And his blood is shed so that we can be forgiven by God and accepted by him. Uh, And this aspect of the blood of the covenant also explains where we get the word testament. We've mentioned already about the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, We use the word testament rather than just saying Old Covenant and New Covenant in the Bible. Because there's a dimension to testament that doesn't always come through when we use the word covenant. In the Greek... That the word for a last will and testament is the same word for covenant. It's the exact same word. It's diatheke, uh, if you want to hear the word. That's the word. And it can mean either a last will and testament, or it can mean a covenant. And those two overlap quite a bit. Uh, and the, the basic meaning of that word is to set something in order. Uh, it's that word for covenant is used in our passage in Mark 14.24. Uh, again, it it means to set something in order. And in a covenant, God makes an arrangement with his people. God sets the covenant in order. You know, covenants aren't contracts. God never makes a contract with people. You know, it's not as if God and and Moses are up on the mountain and Moses says, well, God, if you want us to keep the Sabbath, you better let us have some bacon. 
There's, there's no negotiating going on. God is the one who sets the terms of the covenant. He sets it in order, and it's on the people to say, yes, we will do that or not. He is the one who sets the term. He sets it in orders. Uh, so that's the idea of the covenant. But the idea of a last will and testament as well, you, you have somebody who sets their household in order for after they're gone. They arrange things for how they will be, and they set that in law, and it goes into effect. But it only goes into effect when they pass away. Uh, now, as we think about this as applied to God, there's a sense in which God can't make a last will and testament exactly because, well, God can't die, right? When's God going to die? Well, he's never going to die. He has lived forever and will live forever. So when we talk about God and use this word, we generally talk about a covenant, something that he makes and he brings it about when he wants to. Um, But what happens if God becomes a man? Well, then we can use language of testament, the last will and testament, Because as man, Christ is able to die. Now, I'm not barking up a a random tree here. There's actually a passage that goes into this. If you go a little farther in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to end here today, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 15 and following, we'll see this, the author is exploring the idea of the covenant and the last will and testament. The word is the exact same in Greek. Uh, I'll read from verse 15 down to 22 and say a few more things about it here. Uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9:15 says, "Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will, it's our word for covenant, it's the, the last will and testament idea. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That makes sense, right? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been made, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he got the blood, or he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. Now, I'll stop there for a moment. Notice, it's not the blood of God there. That's the blood of bulls and goats. That's the mark of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Verse 21, And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here we see in the new covenant, we see that the new covenant is a last will and testament. Uh, that, and that's why we, I think we call it the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, the new covenant is a last will and testament. And it is the death of Jesus that brings it about. Now this is one of the glorious things about the New Testament and the story of the Bible is that Jesus brings this last will and testament into effect by dying for us. Through that, we are forgiven of our sins. Through that, we're brought into the inheritance of God. We are brought near to God. All of these blessings of the new covenant come to us when Christ dies. But because he was sinless, he didn't stay dead. So he comes back alive again. He lives forever. 
and he lives with us in that inheritance. That's pretty amazing. He lives with us. We share with him in the benefits that he has accomplished. And today he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. All of this is possible through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Uh, And at the Last Supper that we've been considering, Jesus gives thanks for the cup and he gives it to his disciples. He tells them that it is the cup of of the covenant in his blood which is poured out for many. Still to this day, there is an open invitation for people to come into this covenant. If you have trusted in Christ, then rejoice in God. He has brought you near by the blood of His Son. He has paid the price to bring you home, to bring you in as His people. If you've not trusted in Christ, I invite you this morning to do that, to come to Him. And for whoever the Lord puts in your life who doesn't know Christ yet, I encourage you, invite them into this covenant. Invite them to know the Lord. We're going to take communion now, and I'll ask the men to prepare and and Elizabeth to come to play.